You thought I was bright, it was just that. <laughs> Alright, this morning we're going to go to James chapter 5 again. We started this passage, or looked at this passage several weeks ago, and then had several other things that came in between. I have to tell you, I hate canceling church, and unfortunately we had to do that last week. I missed being with all of you, I missed sharing the word of God, and just singing together and praying together. So it is good to be back together today. But we're going to come back to James chapter 5. We're going to read the same verses, starting at verse 13 down through verse 20. And we'll pick up then with our message where I left off a few weeks ago. James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. If you found that, you can follow along. The Bible says here, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another, and pray for one another, that she may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elias, or Elijah, was a man subject to passions, as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins." Let's take a minute and pray before our message this morning. Our Father, again, we just praise you and thank you because you've given us your truth in the Bible. Lord, we know that this is your word. You have inspired it. You've given it through men to us so that we can have what you want us to understand, what you want us to know. And so as we study this passage in James today about prayer, I pray that you would teach us from your words, I pray that you would encourage us, but also convict us in how we pray. And so, Lord, just do your work now by your Holy Spirit and impress upon us the things that we need to know. Lord, use me now as your instrument, as your speak, spokesperson. Lord, I need your help, and so fill me with your spirit and your strength. Give me your wisdom and give me the words to say so that we might hear from you today. And may you be glorified in all that's done now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The last time we were here in this passage a few weeks ago, we were looking at God's prescription for prayer to be a continuous part of a believer's life. In the first couple of verses here at 13 and 14, we see that in 13, James says that when you are afflicted or when you suffer persecution or some kind of suffering, not sickness necessarily, but some kind of physical suffering, he says you should pray. That's your response as a believer. And then the next phrase, he says, if you're married, if things are going well, if your life is good, God has provided everything, you feel good, pray. But he says, praise God. That's prayer as well. We praise the Lord for the good things that he gives us. 
And then as we get to 14, he gives us the scenario when someone is extremely sick. And the sickness that he describes here is one that debilitates you to the point where you're not able to get to church and almost so weak that you can't even pray. The Greek word here uh, has the connotation of being so weak and sick that you faint. Okay, so we saw that the response there is a response of prayer, but it's actually calling for the elders of the church, James says, to come and anoint you with oil and pray over you. And it says the prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick. And I share with you why I believe that this is talking about physical sickness, not just spiritual sickness, and why I believe that it's a literal prayer and anointing with oil in simple obedience to God's word. And verse 15 says, that kind of prayer in faith will save the sick or bring healing to the sick person. Okay? Now, I want to remind you, we're talking about the prayer of faith. That's the context of all this. And so, praying in faith is learning to see things in God's perspective, or from God's perspective. We look at circumstances, we look at our condition and we think, well, I have to pray for this, or I have to pray in this way, and that's the answer that we need. But in the context here of healing, we have to remember what God considers to be healing. There are times when God will physically heal a person from their sickness. But we also saw times when God says, no, I'm not going to heal you, because my will is better than what you understand. In Paul's instance, for, uh, for example... He had a thorn in the flesh, a physical infirmity, that he asked God three times to remove. And God said, no, because my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And Paul said, so gladly, therefore, will I rejoice in my infirmities, that God might be glorified. So God may not give us that specific healing that we're looking for. And then there's the ultimate healing that God may give, that Rick has now experienced. Then when God says, okay, I'm going to take you away from all suffering, from all sickness, from all pain, and heal you once and for all. Okay, and so that's God's ultimate answer of healing as well. So we have to look at these answers to prayer and healing from God's side, not just from what we think is best for us. In Psalm chapter 34, one of my favorite Psalms, verse 19 it says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. God decides the best way to deliver us. And see, that's the prayer of faith. When we pray in faith, it's trusting God to do what's best there, not just what we want or what we expect. So God can provide miraculous healing through prayers offered in faith, but we have to trust that God's answer is better than our understanding. And is the best answer to what we're praying for. And then he comes to the end of verse 15. And this is where we left off the last time. And James says, And if he has committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. And that brings us to one of the questions that we uh, faced, or, or I tried to answer in our question and answer Sunday a couple weeks ago. And the question was, are there specific illnesses that are the result of sin? And the short answer was, yes, all sickness is the result of sin, because there was no sickness or death before Adam and Eve sinned and brought the curse upon the world. So sickness and death are the direct result of sin, but our specific illnesses that we suffer 
in our lives, the result, the direct result, of specific sins we have committed? And I think the answer there is yes as well. Okay? Because we have specific examples in Scripture of God using physical infirmity or sickness to punish or judge people, chastise them as His children, to, to wake them up, in a sense. C.S. Lewis, in a, a book called The Problem of Pain, he said, suffering, pain, is God's megaphone to rouse a sleeping world. And I think God uses sickness and suffering, that physical suffering in our life, for that very purpose sometimes. There may be something in our life that we haven't surrendered, or, or some specific sin that we haven't confessed and repented of, and God has to get our attention. And so he lets us or imposes upon us sickness so that we become weak. We may end up suffering extremely in our physical bodies. But God wants us to go to him. And it's when we are suffering, both in persecution and in illness, those are the times that generally mankind in general goes to God for help. And so, yes, God, I believe, does use specific sickness as chastisement or judgment for sin. Let me give you some examples. I shared one with you before. But we do know that God has used sickness to judge people. Now, I want to remind us that not all sickness, then, is God's judgment for sin. Okay, in John 9, the disciples and Jesus came across a blind man. And the disciples said, well, who sinned? This man or his parents, that's why he's blind. And Jesus said, no, neither one is sin. There are certain things that God will use to declare and demonstrate his glory. Here's one of them. And then he healed him to demonstrate the glory of God. So the purpose for that man's blindness wasn't because of sin, it was because God wanted that opportunity to show his glory to those people around him. And he did it through that man. But there's several examples of people who are sick in the Bible um, that we can look at. And I just lost my place here, I'm sorry. But um, if you go back into um, the Old Testament, when Israel came out of Egypt, and Moses was leading them, and Moses had with him his sister Miriam and Aaron on his side. And at one point, Miriam and Aaron both kind of rebelled. Miriam started the rebellion. They said, well, why does Moses get to be in charge? Why, why is he the one that gets the, the, the first place? We're the same family. In fact, we're older. Why, why is it him? And so she challenged God's choice of, of Israel's leader. And because of that sin of rebellion, God struck her with leprosy. That leprosy was directly re related to her sin of rebellion there. Okay, if you go to 2 Kings, there's Elijah's servant Gehazi. Remember the story of Naaman. When Naaman came to Elijah for healing, and Elijah just sent the message, go dunk yourself seven times in the Jordan. And eventually, Naaman went and was cleansed in the Jordan River, and they came back and wanted to give Elijah all of these gifts and money and rewards. And Elijah said, no, I don't want any of that. This is for God's glory. And so Naaman left. But then... Elijah's servant, Gehazi, said, well, if Elijah isn't going to take it, I'm going to. And so he ran after Naaman and he lied to him. He said, well, you know, some things have taken place and Elijah's changed his mind, so maybe you can just give us 
a little bit of what you offered, and Gehazi took it for himself. And then as soon as he went back into Elijah's house, Elijah looked at him and said, where did you go? And Elijah knew. And he said, your sin now is going to cause the leprosy of Naaman to come upon you. So that, that sickness was directly related to the sin that Gehazi committed. So we see over and over and over in Scripture, there are sicknesses that are related directly to sin. And so James is discussing that type of situation here. He's not saying that all sickness is the result of sin. But as you get to the end of verse 15, he says, if he has committed sins, then he shall be forgiven. So if this sickness, if this debilitating suffering that this person is going through is a result of sin, not only will he be healed through this process of praying and faith and confessing, but he will be forgiven the sin that caused his sickness in the first place. So here's the first point I want to give you from this passage here. Unconfessed sin and unrepentant heart can result in sickness. Now, again, I mentioned last time that in verse 14, there are some theologians and commentators who believe that it's talking about spiritual sickness. And, and that is a valid point. Okay, when we harbor sin in our lives and we don't confess it to God, it hinders not only our prayer, but it hinders us just functioning as a Christian in our everyday lives. So we could literally put ourselves in a place where we are so spiritually debilitated because of the sin that we've allowed that we can't even pray anymore. They're not effective. The psalmist says in Psalm 66, 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And so there are places or parts of our life where we allow sin to accumulate that it actually keeps us from being able to pray and God hearing our prayers. And so that's possible. That, that is absolutely a valid way to look at verse 14, but I think there's also that physical sickness that is related to sin as well. And so we have examples in Scripture. In fact, in Psalm 38, David um, this is one of David's psalms of penitence, or one of the penitential psalms where David is confessing his son, his sins and pleading to God not only for healing, but for forgiveness. And in verses 33, I'm sorry, 3 through 7 um, in Psalm 38, this is what David said, There's no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger, talking about God. Neither is there rest in my bones because of my sin, for mine iniquities are gone over my head, as a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and are corrupt because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long, for my loins are filled with a loathsome disease, and there's no soundness in my flesh. And so David is expounding upon this illness, physical problem that he's got in his body, and he knows, he says in verse 3, it's because of his sin. Now, we don't know specifically what sin this is. It could be a sin with Bathsheba. It could be another sin that he's confessing to God. But he directly attributes this physical sickness to the sin that he's committed. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul is trying to deal with the Corinthian believers about how they abuse the table of communion as they come to the Lord's Supper. And in verse 29 and 30 in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. And he's saying, 
Some of you are sick physically, and some of you have died because you approached the table of the Lord with the wrong attitude and a sinful and selfish heart. You're just there to get something for yourself, and that's not what this is supposed to be about. And therefore, God has allowed you to get sick, and God has actually allowed some of you to die because of it. So we have to understand that, yes, there is sickness that God allows in our life as a direct result of sin that we have committed and not confessed to Him. And so what does James say in verse 16 in regard to the situation? He says, confess your faults to one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So it's not just if we're sick because of sin. Any sin should be confessed. Okay, 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So of course... Any sin that we become aware of that God makes known to us that's in our lives and that we've committed or allowed to stay there, we need to confess that to God and ask for forgiveness. Okay, that's the first step. But what James here says is a little bit interesting because it doesn't say confess to the Lord. Who does it say confess it to? It says confess your faults, and that word faults means sins. Confess your sins one to another. We are to confess to each other. Why? Why does James exhort us here to, to, to expose all of those secret sins that have caused us spiritual and physical weakness to other people? What business is it of theirs, what we're doing in our life, and what makes us sick? James answers that question right here. He says, confess your, sin, your sins to one to another and pray for one another. See, here's the prayer of faith. It's a specific prayer for this sick person, spiritually or physically. And in knowing how to pray for that person, then the prayers become more effective and more fervent, as we'll see in just a minute. So confessing our faults one to another, we actually help other people understand what our condition is spiritually that may have led to that physical sickness. And then they can pray for us not just to get better in our body, but for us to be able to be restored to fellowship with the Lord through confession and repentance for that specific sin. And so we don't pray just in a general sense, Lord, heal them and forgive them. We pray for that sin. We pray for that specific infirmity. But nobody knows how to pray unless you're willing to confess it to each other. So we pray effectively, James says here, when we know what we're praying for. Now, the question is, if I have to confess that specific sin, isn't that kind of humiliating? Yes, and that's the whole point. For people to know the sins that I'm struggling with so they can pray for me, that gives them more power in prayer because they know how to pray. But for me, in confessing that sin, it puts me in a state of humility. What causes us to sin in the first place? Pride. What causes us to hide that sin from God and from others so that we won't be exposed for the real people that we are? Pride. And by confessing, 
We're putting ourselves in a state of humiliation and humility, letting go of all that pride. That's the whole point. Pride is at the root of all sin. And so until our pride is broken and it's taken out of us, that sin can't be taken care of and that sickness is not going to be taken care of either. And that's what James is saying here. So once confession is made by the sick person and he exposes the sin and he pleads with God and with the other believers to support him in prayer, not in just overcoming the sickness, but in overcoming that sin, then there's power in the prayer of those who are praying with him. So the confession is made and then in a true act of fellowship, instead of coming to that person and condemning them and criticizing them and ostracizing them because, oh, they're a sinful person. See, if we respond that way, then our problem is pride too. Because we're no better than them and we know, every single one of us sitting in this building knows that we have sin in our own lives. We just don't want anybody to know about it. So we're guilty of the pride. In Galatians chapter 6, 1, Paul says this, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault or a sin, you which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. You don't walk in and say, Oh, well, I'm a spiritual giant in my church, so I can pray for you, and my prayers are going to get through. See, that's pride. We all come before the Lord knowing that we're sinners. We all come before the Lord knowing that we don't deserve anything. And we all have our own issues that we have to deal with. So none of us should look at the other person who's suffering and say, oh, well, they're more sinful than I am. That's why I'm not sick and they are. We all deserve to die. That's the real matter. That's the truth of it. And so Galatians 6, Paul says, if you're going to restore somebody through prayer, through counseling, through encouragement, come to meekness. Because... He says, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. We're not any better than the sick person or the sinner. We are all sinners. No one's more spiritual than anyone else. And so if you think you're above or better than that one who's confessing sin in your lives, then you need to start confessing your own sin of pride and get right with God. Because if you keep that sin of pride in your heart, thinking you're better than everybody else, God's not going to hear your prayers. That's what the psalmist says. And so as Galatians 6 says, beware as you try to help others, as you pray for them, that pride doesn't hinder your own intervention. Now, I said last time, this prayer of faith that James mentions here, praying in faith, this is not just the part of the sick person. It's not just the elders who are praying in faith. It's all the believers together. We all believe what the Bible says. We all believe that God has the power not only to heal the body, but to forgive sin as well. And when Jesus, remember, healed a man with a withered hand, he looked at the Pharisees and said, okay, which is greater, to heal this man or to forgive sin? And he said, your sins be forgiven thee. And then he healed them as well. See, the sin is the greater problem. That has to be dealt with. And until we deal with the sin and understand that our sin is what's causing the issue in the first place, we're not going to get any restoration or healing anyway. So this prayer of faith comes from everyone involved. It's not just one person that has to pray in faith. It's all of us. But it has to begin with humility on every part. The person being afflicted, the elders that are trying to pray and help this person, the congregation, the people that he has confessed to, 
that know that they are sinful as well in humility. They come before God just pleading for God's intervention. That's what this prayer of faith is talking about. So if you think that your prayers and the prayers of your church are going to be effective in helping you if you're sinful in a sick situation and either the people praying for you are too spiritually dignified to confess your sin to each other, then you're sadly mistaken about what results you're going to expect. Okay? You cannot have a group of people praying for you that think they're somehow better and that makes them in a better position to pray for you. And you can't be in that position either. I've heard it said that if every churchgoer were to wear a placard around their neck, and on that placard was listed all of our most egregious sins that we try to hide, we would be different people and we would treat each other differently. James says that's how we're supposed to live with one another. Confess your weaknesses. Confess that you're a sinner. Ask people to pray for the things that you're struggling with in your life. None of us are free from sin. And so as we recognize that and acknowledge that together, then we can better and in more power pray for each other. And then that's when James says, healing will come. Okay? And this is all part of this prayer of faith. So really true fellowship among believers includes this aspect of admitting our weakness to each other. We can't do it ourselves. We need your help. We need your prayers. I'm struggling with this sin. I need you to bring me before God to help me overcome it. But if we're too proud to ever get there, how can we ever expect God to help us? And then James says this, that when we come to God in that manner of humility, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That's the prayer of faith. We look at situations that maybe we've been involved with or that other people have been involved with and we're praying, we're praying, we're praying. Maybe this is the problem. Maybe God is not hearing our prayers or He's not answering and healing because we are in the spirit of humility and true faith. We think that somehow because I'm offering this prayer, God's going to listen to me. That's not the situation. James says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Now, there's two conditions here that James puts on this effective prayer. He says, one, effective prayers must be fervent prayers. Number two, effective prayers must be offered by righteous people. That is, one who's right with God. Anybody who's steeped in pride is not right with God. So your prayers are not going to be effective. Now, let me begin with the second one first. The righteous man. Effective prayers must be offered by a righteous man. Now, obviously, this first condition means that it has to be a prayer offered by a believer. Someone who has been saved and forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay? Unredeemed sinners really have no prayer that God is going to answer except the initial prayer of faith and repentance to come to salvation. Okay? They have no right, they have no standing before God to come to Him and ask Him for anything. Now, God may be merciful and gracious and grant them desperate prayers for help or whatever, but they have no standing to come before God. So James is saying a righteous person, first you have to be, be a Christian. 
And in James 3, we'll go back a couple of chapters. In verses 13 and 14, James says this, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. And here James basically is saying wisdom is characteristic of a righteous person. You can read that in Proverbs. That's what Proverbs is all about. The character of a wise man. That's a righteous person. And, and James says if you're a wise person, then you should show out of a good conversation or a good lifestyle how you live your life. Your works with meekness in wisdom. See, there's that hallmark of meekness that characterizes a, a truly righteous person. Someone who's right with God must be humble and meek. And so James says a truly righteous man here will live in a way that his good works are done in meekness and humility. And so that takes pride right out of the picture, right from the beginning. You can't be proud and be able to pray. You can't be proud and be considered a righteous person in God's eyes. In fact, verse 14 in chapter 3 goes on and it says, here's what it looks like if pride is still present. You have bitter envyings. We're jealous about each other. We lift ourselves over each other. And there's strife. Do you ever see two proud people get in a room together? And each one of them has to have their own way and each one of them has to be considered better than the other? That's where strife starts. And so James defines a righteous person by someone who is meek and humble, recognizes our own weaknesses. And so he says, in order for your prayers to be effective, you must first come to God on the basis of righteousness and humility, which really is, is uh, substantiated in our submission to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We offer no righteousness to God. We have none of our own. So we have to depend on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And as we do that, and we realize we have no righteousness of our own, there's the basis for our humility. Now you may argue and say, but, you know, I'm never going to be considered in God's eyes as righteous because Romans 3 says no one's good. No one's good enough to come into God's presence. Okay? It's only the, the super-Christians that really then can be effective in prayer, Right? Well, jump down to verse 17 in chapter 5. Look at the example he gives us. Elijah. You think, man, Elijah, one of the greatest prophets of Israel. Okay, but that's not how James describes him. Look at how James describes Elijah here in verse 17. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. It means Elijah's just like you. Elijah struggles with things just like you. Now let me give you a description of Elijah, the great prophet. After he prays, and he gives us the example, he prayed and there was no rain for three and a half years. That's the effective prayer. But after he prays, what does Elijah do? That story's not here. Elijah looks around and sees that all the other prophets are being killed by Queen Jezebel. So he runs away, afraid for his life. And he hides in a cave. He complains to God. He says, Lord, I'm the only one. I'm the only one trying to be right. Look what's happening. And, oh, uh, he's crying and whining. And God lets him cry and whine for a while. And then, you know, as he's hiding in the cave, the storm and the fire and all the things, and yet God wasn't in that. And finally, the still small voice comes to Elijah. 
It tells them the truth. Elijah was a man of like passions as we are. He had the same nature. He struggled with the same things. So he's not a super Christian here. He's just like you and me. That would be our response. We run away and hide. And that's what Elijah did. And yet God answered the prayer of Elijah because he learned to pray in faith. Now verse 18 it says, And he prayed again. The heavens gave rain, the earth brought forth her fruit. And the story there is when he goes, comes back after three and a half years, he meets the, the prophets of Baal on the top of Mount Carmel. And we know the story how he drenches the altar and God sends fire down to burn up the sacrifice to prove who the true and living God is. And after that event is over, the prophets of Baal are slaughtered, and then Elijah prays for rain. And how did he pray? Did he say, okay, God, it's time to rain, let's go? No, he got down on his knees and put his face to the ground, and he prayed seven times. And he kept sending his servant out to check. And finally, the servant came, comes back and says, oh, there's a little cloud over there about the size of a man's hand. And Elijah says, okay, it's time to run, because we're going to get drenched. God's going to answer prayer. That's the example we have of someone who prays in faith. Just like us. So it's a righteous person. It's not a perfect person. It's not a super Christian. It's a person just like you who's submissive to God's authority and God's truth who prays in faith believing that God can do what he said he's going to do. That's the first condition. You have to be a righteous person. And secondly, he says... There's fervency in this effective prayer. The Greek word for fervent here is energeo. Sounds like energy. It's a word we get energy from. But it means with energy or actively, fervently. Think about doing something fervently. It's an active, energetic, focused, intense, repeated action. I think a great way to illustrate this. I remember when I was about 13 my dad got tired of paying for uh, heating oil. And so he bought a wood-burning stove, and we thought it was great. We installed it in our house, and then we realized with a wood-burning stove comes work. Because there's not this little line that comes into the house bringing firewood. He had three boys that became that source of firewood. But he got a massive load of wood right after that, delivered, and it was dumped in our yard, and some of these pieces of wood were as big as this pulpit. I was like, what are we ever going to do with that? And he showed us a great illustration of this principle of fervent prayer. He took one of the biggest ones that was about three feet around, and he put it up there, and he had this axe, and he started whacking on that thing. And he whacked as hard as he could. You could see the blood vessels popping out of his head. And it seemed like he went at it for five minutes and we're standing there watching and he hardly made a dent in the top of that log. And I'm thinking, this is ridiculous. He's never going to get through that. But he continued to hit that log. He continued to put his effort into it. And eventually you start to see a little crack form at the top and as he continued to smack the top of that log, that crack got bigger and bigger and bigger. And with one last blow, the whole thing split in half and fell apart. That's the picture of fervent prayer. That's what fervent prayer looks like. It's an intense, committed, continuous, focused prayer to God, pouring out a request with everything that we have in ourselves to Him.
not offered once in that manner. It's offered over and over and over and over again. Because if that's what we're serious about, then that's what we want God to know about. And just like that little axe repeatedly beating on that huge stump, eventually our fervent prayers will break through the gates of heaven and affect God's answer in our lives and bring what we're looking for. How come we don't see mighty answers to prayer in our lives? Because we don't, need, we don't know how to pray fervently. We don't do that. In James 4, he references this in a way. He says, you have not because you ask not. Yeah, God, I need this. Amen. I'm going to go about my day and see what he does. What happened to fervent prayer? Jesus gave the illustration of a widow coming to the, the king and beckoning him for, for justice in a matter. And the king pushes her off, but she comes back repeatedly, 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 repeatedly. And finally, the king gets kind of fed up. He says, okay, I'll deal with it. I'll take care of what you need me to take care of. And she got her answer. And Jesus says, that's the way we should pray. Not we pray until God gets fed up with us, but that repeated approach to God's throne, bringing that request before him, shows our absolute and utter dependence upon God. And what stops us from that? Pride. I got this, God. Don't worry about it. James says, you have not because you ask not. But then he says, when you do ask, you don't get your answers. Why? Because all you ask for is things that you want to consume upon your own lust. You just want what you want. You don't want what God wants. You pray for things that are important to you, not things that are important to God. And you're praying out of selfishness, not that God's will would be done in your life. Now, I want you to think about this. How many of us would fervently pray if there was the opportunity for God to give us a million dollars. That was something like, whoa, that would be amazing. Yes, we're going to pray, we're going to pray, we're going to pray, we're going to pray. How many of you pray that way and ask God for humility or patience? Which is more important? Character of humility and patience. Yet we don't pray for that. We want the million dollars, we want the blessings, we want the benefits, we pray for those. We're willing to fervently pray for those, but do we really pray for what God really wants for us? Our prayers are not effective because they're not offered in real faith. The effective prayer of faith must be offered fervently out of a heart of submission and humility. Let me share some thoughts about what it means to really pray in faith. Over the years, I have participated before I became a pastor as well as after in many what they call spiritual gift surveys. The Bible tells us every believer has been given specific spiritual gifts by the Holy Spirit. Supernatural empowerments and enablements in specific areas. There's gifts of, uh, of giving, there's gifts of mercy, there's gifts of help, there's, there's about a dozen or more. Okay, in the New Testament days, it was a gift of healing, a gift of uh, speaking in tongues, miraculous gifts. But one of the gifts is the gift of faith, right, mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12. Anyway, I've taken a lot of these spiritual gift surveys, and consistently, my most prominent spiritual gifts that always show up, number one, gift of teaching. That's obvious because that's a requirement to be a pastor. Okay, God has given me that. 
I'm not proud about that. I'm not boasting about that. That's the gift that God has given me. And hopefully I can use that to benefit other people. But the other gift that always comes to the top is the gift of faith. And the gift of faith really is believing that God can and will do what He said He would do. And it's not limitations on that and conditions don't affect that and our circumstances don't affect that. God will do what He said He's going to do. Now, you don't have to have the gift of faith in order to pray in faith. You just have to learn to believe that God will do what He said He's going to do. Okay, I can testify to the fact that I have seen God do the impossible many times in response to prayer. I shared one of those instances a couple weeks ago where we saw a man in our church literally healed in days from cancer as we prayed and obeyed the Lord in that way as a church. I could share example after example of how God answers, answers prayers of our family in extraordinary ways, little things and big things. As we bound together in prayer, continue to ask God to meet our needs or do certain things. And we watch God continue to be faithful as we continue to go to Him in prayer, believing that He could and would provide those things that we are praying for. Now, I don't know that I would even call those prayers fervent. Okay? We did them repeatedly. We did them as a family together. But I think we even may have fallen short of fervent. But God answered so you don't have to have the gift of faith to see God answer those prayers or to be able to pray in faith. You don't have to be a super Christian to pray in faith. You just have to be an Elijah, a normal person who's willing to follow the Lord. And that's what's required, that you believe that the Almighty God that you serve can answer your prayer and that He wants to give you what is best according to His will. That's faith. And with that type of faith as a foundation, then you begin to pray. And you pray for God to give you specific answers to specific needs. Not just once, but over and over and over and over. How serious are you about wanting God to answer this prayer? That will show in the fervency of your prayer. And that's what James means when he says the fervent prayer is effectual or effective. It brings down the answers from God. It avails much. Our problem is we don't pray in faith. We pray out of habit. We pray out of duty because that's what a Christian is supposed to do. But we don't pray fervently in faith. And that's why we don't see the power of God in our lives. There are four places in Scripture that the Bible tells us that just shall live by faith. It's not talking, those are not talking about initial salvation. Even though we are saved by faith, or through faith, by God's grace. Okay, that takes faith to enter into salvation. But then those who are truly saved will continue to live by that faith that brought them to the Lord in the first place. That's what those verses are saying. We continue living, demonstrating that faith in how we live and in how we pray. In other words, we live and pray more according to God's promises than we do according to our predicaments. We don't look at what's out there and say, well, that's impossible. I'm never going to get through that. You look at what God who can do the impossible has promised. 
and live and pray that way. If God has said in Hebrews 13.5 that He will never leave us or forsake us, and we believe that, then we should live and pray like we believe that He's still with us, even when it feels like He isn't. Because His Word is more substance than what we see or feel. If God has said in Philippians 4.19 that He will provide all our needs according to the riches in Christ Jesus, then we have to live and act and pray like we believe that He will provide all our needs. Even when it seems like we're lacking. If God has said in Matthew 21.22 All things whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing you shall receive and we should act and pray and live like we believe that He will give us what we ask for according to His will. That's the believing part. Even when it seems like He isn't listening. And if God has said that He will heal here when we pray in faith, then we have to act and pray like we believe that God will heal in answer to those prayers. Now again, we have to see it from God's perspective. But do we really pray like that? Our problem is not that God doesn't listen to our prayers. The problem is that we pray too little because our faith is too small. Folks, I want us as believers, as a church, to experience life, abundant life that Jesus talked about. I want us to experience healing, spiritual growth, restoration, like we never have before. It's possible. It's there because God has promised all of that. I'm not saying He's going to make you perfectly healthy and wealthy and have lots of friends and your life is going to be perfect. But all those blessings that are bound up in Jesus Christ are available to us and we are robbing ourselves of those because we don't believe God's going to give it to us. And that's why we don't pray. But the starting point is to learn to live and pray in real boots-on-the-ground faith. We pray like we mean it. We live like we mean it. And like we believe everything that we read in God's Word. You say you believe that God answers prayer? Then show it in how you pray. You say you want to see this church grow and thrive? Prove it in how you pray for each other. How you ask for prayer for yourself. That's where God's going to build this church. Starting with us. May God help us to learn that probably one of our greatest needs is just to learn to pray in faith. Because I doubt very much that any of us here do it that well. We can all learn and grow. And James here gives us a prescription for that. We just need to take heed of it and start practicing it according to what God has told us in His Word. You want to see God's answers to prayer? The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much and so just like the disciples, we need to be crying out to God every day, saying, Lord, teach me to pray. Father, this is something that we all struggle with. 
knowing how to pray in faith. Our lack of prayer shows this clearly. And we can't fix it without your help. So teach us to pray. Teach us what it means to boldly come before your throne of grace, to find help in time of need, knowing that if we need your help, then you are there to answer us, and we do need your help all the time. So may we learn to pray without ceasing. Lord, teach us to pray fervently. Teach us to seek your will in everything as we pray, expecting answers according to your promises. And may we grow to see how mighty your hand can be revealed in our own lives and in the lives of others if we just learn to pray as you told us to. And so Lord, we thank you for this lesson from your word today. I pray that you help us not to forget what you've taught us here, but to become doers of your word and not hearers only. And may you be glorified in our lives as we seek you diligently each day, in our lives and in our prayer. And we thank you for your promise that you hear us and that you will respond when we come to you in that kind of faith. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.